morning, everybody. Good to see you. You're looking a little more alert today, which is awesome. Praise God for an extra hour to rest. And um, I'm so glad that uh, we're all together here today. Isn't it good to be in God's house on the Lord's Day and uh, sing His praises? It's a great thing. Hey, take the, the uh, study guide out of your worship folder, and I'm feeling moved today to offer to middle schoolers in the room my periodic middle school donut challenge. And that means that if you'll come up to me after the service with your notes all filled in, like all the blanks filled in, stuff written on all the lines, I'm not looking for skimpy note-taking here, okay? I'm looking for robust, full-bodied notes. If you come and show that to me, I'll sign off on it, and you can go to the cafe and get a, a donut on me. Um, hopefully that's okay with your folks, and uh, just let them know. Put it on Pastor Steve's tab. I should probably check that tab to see what's, <laughs> what's on it, huh? So that's for middle schoolers, okay? So uh, I'll look forward to seeing you at the end of our time together. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray you would take the Word and embed it in our hearts today. Speak to us about our lives, about life, and about ultimate reality. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about having a mountaintop experience. Familiar with that term, right? We all know what that is. Very special moment when you find yourself in a situation or a circumstance and everything's just kind of coming together and you just feel fully alive in that moment and it's exhilarating like you've been lifted up to a higher plane. These are powerful experiences, aren't they? And uh, their memory stays with us for a long, long time. And some people have had what they would call mountaintop experiences with God. You ever had one of those? I've had a few of them. Ironically, several of them occurred on a mountaintop. <laughs> Those were sacred times when I felt like I was in the presence of God. Like he was right there. Like I could sense him. I could feel him. All of my senses were awakened and I felt fully alive. And, and honestly, in that moment, nothing else much mattered. But being there with the Lord... I wanted desperately to stay in that place, right, of closeness and nearness to God. I hoped it would never end. I felt I had encountered the Lord. One man called these our great moments with God, and he said, never, ever forget your great moments with God. Well, in this passage of Scripture that we just heard read, the Apostle Peter refers to a mountaintop experience that he had once with Jesus. An unforgettable few minutes, I suppose, that he never forgot, also took place on an actual mountain. What he saw there and what he heard there was forever etched into his memory and into his imagination. And interestingly, Peter came to believe that this experience was actually a preview a preview of things to come, things that God had promised but hadn't happened yet. And as he recalled his great moment with God, it gave him a sense of confidence that those things were indeed going to come to pass someday. Peter's mountaintop experience with Jesus figures into the theme of our 
message for today. And so let me put it in the form of a question. And it's this, how can we know for sure, how can we know for sure that Jesus is going to come back one day? It's a fair question, right? That's where we're headed in our sermon today. And we've been studying this letter of 2 Peter, and, and in our study, we, we found that one of Peter's purposes in writing this letter was to help first century believers, first century Christians, fortify themselves spiritually, become strengthened spiritually. He aimed to help them become better equipped, especially to recognize false teachers, false teachers who were there on the circuit in those days, traveling around, peddling their brand of religion, which was really a kind of counterfeit Christianity, and they were doing so while at the same time living immoral lives, right, and ungodly lives. And Peter was a pastor. He was a spiritual shepherd, and he was concerned that too many Christians were being duped by these guys and falling under their spell, falling under their influence. And of course, here we've made references many times to the fact that this is a pervasive challenge in our day as well, right? Perhaps even more so with the advent of the internet and the ability to pull out your device, and with just a few taps of your finger, you can hear about any kind of teaching that you'd want to hear. You can hear gifted, dynamic, articulate people teach from every theological stripe and tribe. So in that regard, I think in this era, the era we live in, it's both very, very exciting and also very, very challenging. Well, Peter knew that his time here on this earth was short. He knew he wasn't going to be around that much longer, and he wanted these people that he was writing to, to have a record, a written record of his thoughts so that after he was gone, they could refer back to it. And he hoped it would guide them through the maze of messages that were out there in those days. And so he left this letter behind, what we call Second Peter. One thing we noted in our passage last week is that those other preachers evidently were presenting a distorted view, shall we call it, of God's saving grace. They were teaching that, that the grace of God comes into our lives and it saves us, and then we have kind of this license, this uh, carte blanche to live however we want to live. That since you're saved, you've trusted Jesus and you're on your way to heaven, and since God is such a gracious and merciful God, and since he's such a forgiving God, basically uh, you're covered by that grace no matter what manner of selfish pleasures you might want to indulge in. These teachers, by their own lifestyles, their own unrestrained lifestyles, were giving a lot of evidence that that's what they believed. And I've heard this called hyper-grace. In today's passage, we're going to see these guys making some pretty arrogant assertions that fit in quite nicely with their hyper-grace scheme, okay? Assertions about the return of Jesus. Of course, Peter and others had been teaching about the promised return for years, and and these assertions made by these false teachers took the form of a denial and an accusation and an implication. So we're going to explore these first, then we'll look at how Peter defended against them. So first, a denial. These teachers were coming along, and they were denying the second coming of Jesus. They were basically saying, look, sorry, Jesus is not coming back. <laughs> In fact, they were making fun of people who believe that just like many people do today, right? 
that this is what these false teachers were teaching becomes evident if we look ahead a little bit to chapter 3, verse 1, where Peter starts out that chapter like this. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. That's why we call it Second Peter. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers come scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, what? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, these teachers were saying, Jesus is not coming back, people. The future is going to be just like the past. This notion that human history is headed somewhere, heading towards some culmination, some cataclysmic event, some supposed return of Jesus to come back to earth and rule and reign and judge the wicked, that's a lot of nonsense. It's not happening. That's what they were teaching. He's not coming back. Now remember, at this point, Jesus had been gone for a few decades, but his apostles who followed him clearly taught that Jesus promised to return and come back as the great king and judge of all the earth. For example, Peter, this same Peter, years before, right after the start of that very first church, he preached the second coming of Jesus. In fact, he preached it to the very same people who had just called for the crucifixion of Jesus. You can find that in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, where Peter's sermon is recorded, and he's looking at these people who had executed Christ, and he says this, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, listen, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, God's going to send Jesus back to earth. He's coming back to restore all things just like the Old Testament prophets foretold. And of course, when Peter preached that, he was just repeating what he had heard Jesus himself say on a number of occasions. One in particular comes to mind that night that Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus gathered his disciples together in that upper room and he shared a lot of things with them. One of them is quite famous. You probably recall this. Jesus looking at those men and saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, what? I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus himself promised to return, to come back for his own people. And we long for that day, don't we? Now, given that, do you think Peter was a little miffed that these puffed-up, arrogant blowhards were now dismissing the very promise that he had heard with his own ears? He'd heard Jesus say, I'm going to come back for my people, and they were saying, it's not going to happen. They were denying it. 
basically, here's the accusation, they accused Jesus' apostles of what? Making it all up. <laughs> they said, these guys fabricated this. It's, it's a myth. Peter and his boys concocted this harebrained idea, they said, in effect, just so he could, they could manipulate the people and control their lives. That's what they're after, control. They're telling you that Jesus is coming back. He's going to come and judge people for their sins because they just want to restrict your lifestyle and keep you under their thumb. It's control. That's what they're all about. That was the accusation. Well, when Peter heard this, heard that they were accusing him of, of this, he has to set the record straight. And that's where we find ourselves when we come to this passage for today of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a myth. It's not a fabrication. This didn't come from our own heads, our own imaginations. Those fellows who deny that Jesus is going to come back, who are impugning our motives and accusing us of lying to you, he, he was basically saying, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. We'll look at his argument in support of the second coming of Jesus in a moment. But first, think about the implications if Jesus is not coming back. I'm sure the false teachers were capitalizing on one particular implication. Think about this. If Jesus is not coming back, then there's no future judgment where sinful lifestyles are going to be evaluated and judged and Holy living will be rewarded, so if that's not going to happen, then hey, feel free to live however you want to live, right? If it feels good, do it. <laughs> live however you want, that's what they were saying, and how convenient is that? <laughs> Jesus isn't coming back, there's no future judgment, there's no final accountability, so hey, you're free. By the way, do you think there are any people in our day who deny certain Christian doctrines in order to justify how they live. You don't have to look very far to find people like that. So there you have it. The, the arrogant assertions of these false teachers, Jesus is not coming back. The apostles just made that all up. We can all live however we want without fear of having any ultimate accountability before God. Peter just cannot let that go unchallenged. To do so would be damaging, he believes, to God's people. And so he's going to present a defense of the second coming of Jesus to help equip his readers and us, I believe, to stand strong against deception, against error. He's going to make a two-pronged case that the second coming of Christ is really going to happen. First, take note of the word he uses there in verse 16. He talks about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And that word in the original is a wonderful word. It's the word parousia. Would you say that with me? Parousia. Parousia is the Greek word, and it means arrival, appearance, coming. It was often used to uh, denote the coming of an official or a dignitary to town. So I guess in that sense, you could say that the people of Hawaii a couple of days ago were awaiting the parousia 
of President Trump, right? He was going to show up on Air Force One. Now, not to liken President Trump to Jesus, because there is no likeness there. But you get the idea, right? A high official is coming to town. That was called a parousia. And New Testament writers use this word to describe the promised second coming of Jesus to this earth. In the New Testament, it's used that way 17 times. And often, this word parousia is used with the words power and glory. He's coming in power and glory, like it is here in this passage. That's how we know that Peter is not here referring to Jesus' first coming. Because his first coming in Bethlehem's manger that first Christmas, that was not in power and glory, was it? It was in obscurity and humility. So he's not talking about the first coming of Jesus. It's also not likely a reference to another promised appearance of Jesus called the rapture of the church. And we know that because in that event, we're, we're told that Jesus doesn't actually return to the earth. This is found in 1 Thessalonians 4. Instead, he calls people, his people up to meet him in the air, right, in the clouds. The parousia is the second coming of Jesus, the mighty king, to this earth to judge his enemies and to establish his earthly kingdom, his kingly reign on this earth. And, of course, this hadn't yet happened at the time Peter was writing this. In fact, it still hasn't happened, but Christians all over the globe, millions of us, believe that it's going to happen one day, that Jesus is going to return as king, and we longingly anticipate that day. Don't you want to see Jesus? Don't you want to see him in his glory? <laughs> I do. I think, <laughs> I think all of our hopes and dreams are going to be realized in that moment, don't you? That's my Lord. That's my Savior. Peter is offering a defense here, a definitive defense of his conviction and what he taught that Jesus was coming back. And his defense consists of two reasons, two compelling reasons, okay? The first is subjective, the second is objective. The first is based on experience, the second is based on revelation from God. The first comes from the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament apostles, the second comes from the written predictions of the Old Testament prophets, and taken together, they form a powerful argument in support of the apostles' teaching that Jesus is going to come back one day in power and great glory. So here's the first plank of Peter's defense of this belief. Let me read this again. For we did not follow, verse 16, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and parousia coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is now. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice, not the TV show, but the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Here's what the voice said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So the first reason, the first rock-solid reason that you and I can be sure that Jesus, the glorious king, is going to come back one day is the eyewitness testimony of those who were given a preview. He's saying, we apostles witnessed 
Jesus' kingdom glory with our own eyes and ears. Now follow this. Peter is hearkening back to an event, an event in his life that had happened many years before, an event that he never forgot. It was a mountaintop experience that was arranged for he and a couple of his buddies by Jesus himself, a memorable event that occurred on an actual mountain, a holy mountain as he called it. And that was an incredible moment when he saw with his own eyes the majesty of Jesus. Where he saw Jesus receiving honor and glory from the heavenly Father. Honor refers to his exalted status. Glory refers to his dazzling appearance. In that moment, he, he heard a voice from the Father, a booming voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved, beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. An unmistakable reference to Psalm chapter 2. So Peter and his cohorts were there with Jesus. His glory and majesty were being revealed to them. They heard the voice from heaven. And somehow being there and experiencing that event firsthand gave him assurance that Jesus was going to make good on his promise to come back one day as king. So let's ask, what event is he referring to? Was it the baptism of Jesus? Well, I mean, at the baptism of Jesus, that voice was heard, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Was that the very event that, that Peter's referring back to? No, because that didn't happen on a mountain. That happened in a river. This is referring to another event that occurred later on in Jesus' ministry, an event that's often called the transfiguration. Now, when I was a kid... Somebody gave me a Bible. It had a blue cover, I remember. And I remember reading one day in Matthew, and I came across the little header that said the transfiguration. And, of course, I had no idea what that word meant. What? And I remember reading the story, and then I was even more confused. Like, what? <laughs> what is this all about? I didn't understand, and maybe that's true of you as well. So I want us to read about this amazing incident that happened. It's recorded in several of the Gospels. I'm going to use Matthew's version. The transfiguration of Jesus, a preview of kingdom glory. So here's how it begins, Matthew 16, 27. Jesus is talking. He's got his disciples gathered around him on one occasion. He says, for the Son of Man, one of his favorite titles for himself, identifying with our humanity, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What's that referring to? The second coming, the parousia, right? And then he said this, Truly I say to you, he's talking to his disciples, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of you fellows are going to get a glimpse of this. Say when? Keep reading. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. So how many guys? Three, his inner circle there. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Ooh, maybe this is it. And there he was transfigured before them. You say, what does that mean? Well, he tells us. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In Mark's account, he says, whiter than anybody could bleach them. <laughs> Bright white. 
And behold, there appeared to them, if that wasn't enough already, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, because he felt like he needed to say something, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. In one of the other accounts, it says he said this because he didn't know what else to say. <laughs> I guess so. And you know, when you're on the mountaintop and you're having one of those experiences, one of the overwhelming sentiments you have is, I just want this to last. <laughs> I just want this to keep going. So he's like, well, let's build some tents. You know, this is awesome. Let's just hang out here for a while and let me behold this more and more. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. That was a booming voice like none anyone has ever heard. But Jesus came and touched them. Don't you like that? Fellas. <laughs> Saying, Rise. Get up, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It was, it was done. It was over, that moment. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now reading that, you can understand why as a 10-year-old I was confused by this, right? Like, what is this? <laughs> what is going on? So let me try and shed some light on it by using an analogy from our day. Um, we're all familiar with what a movie preview is, right? That's those things when you go to a movie that go for like 20 minutes, right? I mean, you went to see a movie and you got to sit through, what, 15, 20 minutes of previews. But we know what that is. It's a, it's a short movie clip containing a few captivating scenes, right, from an upcoming movie meant to whet your appetite and make you want to see it when it comes out. A preview is a glimpse of something yet to come intended to create anticipation. Well, in a sanctified sense, that's what this was. A preview of the majestic king who will one day come in power and glory and it was a captivating preview shown to a very limited audience <laughs> designed to be a mountaintop experience that they would never, ever forget. And that's certainly what it was. A week before, Jesus had said, not all of you, just a hand-picked few of you disciples are going to get a sneak preview of my kingdom glory. Centuries before it appears, and before I come as king. And this was it. A, a memorable mountaintop experience where Jesus, in a sense, peeled back his robe of flesh for a few moments and revealed who he really was, his true identity, and it was manifested in what? Bright, dazzling light, such that they were blown away. It was a preview of the second coming glory of the king, seen only by these three guys, but those three would become the major spokespersons, right, for this new Christian movement, and they would talk about the glory of the king a lot. One commentator wrote this, As the name suggests, the transfiguration involves a transformation in the appearance of Jesus. But it's a transformation that reveals his true nature, 
It is this glorious and majestic nature, hidden, as it were, during his earthly life, that will one day be revealed to all the world at the time of his parousia, his return. Put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king, and Peter was there to see it. He therefore has utter confidence that Jesus will return as the glorious king one day to establish his kingdom in its final and ultimate form. We get this preview, preview of coming attractions, <laughs> a glimpse to a limited audience of what Jesus will one day reveal to the whole world. And how intriguing is it that these two guys appear? You know, the disciples are there, they're seeing Jesus transformed, and all of a sudden these two other figures appear. I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but they did. Moses and Elijah show up in that moment. Why those two? Why those guys? Why not Nahum and Enoch? Or David and, you know, Solomon? And why those two? Well, I would suggest this. Have you ever heard the Old Testament referred to as the Law and the Prophets? Often it's called the Law and the Prophets, the Law and the Prophets. Well, Moses, I believe, was there to represent the Law. Moses, the great lawgiver. And Elijah was there to represent the prophets, the great prophet Elijah. And so they're both there with Jesus to underscore this truth that the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all point to King Jesus, all three of them there present on that mountain. God wanted Peter, James, and John to have that mind-blowing image embedded in their minds so they'd be able to help people get it, to get that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. What a visual that would have been, don't you think? Etched in their memories forever. Now, I've come to understand that Jesus also had some unfinished business with both Moses and Elijah. He was tying up some loose ends there on that mountain that day as well. But that's another sermon for another day, or you can study that on your own. Because when God's doing one thing, he's always doing a thousand things fascinating to me well here's what peter was saying he's saying i am convinced and i teach others as well that jesus indeed is going to come back one day as the majestic king and i believe that because i was given the honor of witnessing his second coming glory with my own eyes i heard the voice from heaven with my own ears the voice of god the father identifying jesus and approving of him. And so I'm just testifying to what I saw and heard. This is no second-hand report I'm giving here. This is no myth. This is first-hand eyewitness testimony. I was there. And so that's his first reason. The first plank of his argument that the second coming is going to happen, that the false prophets were wrong. His own subjective experience of that moment, the transfiguration. But he's not done. He continues his defense of the apostles' teaching by adding a second point, and this one is objective. An even more sure word, he says, the prophecies of Scripture, which predicted that event, the second coming, actually, he will contend, came from God himself. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. More sure than what? More sure than my own experiencing of witnessing 
the transfiguration of Jesus that day. Something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter is saying, we, we really have an even more solid basis for believing in the second coming than my own eyewitness testimony, as solid as that is. We have the more sure word of the Old Testament prophets who many times predicted that Jesus, God's glorious Messiah, would come back and reign and rule over his people and over the nations. Yes, we have the firsthand experience of us apostles, but we have an even more sure word that adds even more credibility, the Holy Scriptures. We have the word. The word. And I love this because it, it tells us, the sequence here tells us that our experiences can verify the word of God, but it's the word itself that our hopes are ultimately pinned to, right? It's more sure than anyone's personal experience, even the apostles. And because of that, we do well, as he says here, to pay attention to it, to heed the word of God. And there's a metaphor here. It's beautiful. It's vivid. He says the word is a lamp shining in a dark place. Don't you love that? Illuminating the landscape, allowing us to see things for the way they really are as God sees them. And of course, this is the testimony of all of Scripture. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But interestingly here, it's referred to as a light, but it's a temporary light. Interestingly enough, kind of like a nightlight, which we've got all throughout our homes, right? Because it says this lamp shines until... The day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that refers to a day when the truth is going to be readily apparent to everybody. You don't need a nightlight anymore because the sun's high up in the sky and we can see everything clearly. And what day is that referring to? Well, it's the day of the second coming, right? The day Messiah re returns to earth in power and great glory to inaugurate his earthly kingdom reign. On that day... When Jesus appears in power and great glory, it'll become clear to everybody who he is. Everybody's going to behold the truth about our great king. The nightlight is going to be eclipsed by the dazzling, blinding sunlight of the king's arrival. And when that day fully dawns, it says, the morning star will rise in your hearts. Now, this is beautiful language here. The morning star. You know what the original Greek word is? Phosphorus. Phosphorus. Isn't that interesting? It literally means light bringer. Light bringer. And I read that and I ask, well, who is the light bringer? And of course, it's Jesus, the bright morning star, as the Old Testament referred to him. As John said, the light who lights every person coming into the world, Jesus is the light bringer, the ultimate illuminator, right? Illuminating a dark world with his very presence, because he is light. And here's another interesting tidbit. That same word, Greek word phosphorus, was also the word used in that day as a title for a planet. You know which planet? Venus. Venus was called in that day phosphorus. Venus 
which often appears just before dawn in the sky and was called the morning star. So Jesus, the light bringer, is the morning star whose appearance on that day will light up the hearts of his people with a hope that will finally be realized when they see him. He is the bright morning star, but guess what? He's also the sun. (laughs) The sun that's going to bring the full light of day. So what a visual this is. The more sure word enlightens us now with a temporary light, a short-term light, until the light bringer himself comes, the living word, and fully illuminates everything in the world. What a glorious picture this is. And Peter wants his readers and the false teachers and us, I believe, to know something else that's very crucial to understand about this more sure word. And it's this, it comes from God. The scriptures, the writings and sayings recorded in the scriptures are not of human origin, but of heavenly origin. Scripture comes from above, from God himself. And that's the last couple of verses in this section. Knowing this, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not of human origin. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here we have one of the most definitive and intriguing statements in the Bible about the Bible. Peter's point is clear, isn't it? Scripture comes from God, not from man. That's the reason you can rely on it. That's the reason you can trust that it's telling you the truth about everything it speaks to, including the second coming of Jesus. When the Old Testament prophets predicted a coming Messiah who would one day come and reign over the nations as king, just know that what they prophesied was not a product of their own imagination. They spoke from God. That's his point. And it's interesting because as Peter pointed out in his first letter, in some cases, the prophets who were writing this down didn't even understand what they were writing. It says they would go back and review it and scrutinize it, the things they'd written to figure out, what does this mean? Why? Because it was God's Holy Spirit moving them to write what they wrote. It didn't come from their own imagination, because if it had, they would would understand it. But there were times when they wrote things down, and then they stood back and said, what does that mean? Someone was moving them to write it says that they were carried along. This is, again, a very interesting visual. It gives us a striking image of the cooperation between the human and the divine when it comes to scripture being written down, because that word, the original word, is from the the world of sailing. Carried along. It refers to the movement of the wind in the sails of a ship. How many of you are water people, ocean people? love this one commentator put it this way the prophets raised their sails and the holy spirit filled those sails and carried them along in the direction that he wished you get the picture the prophets were borne along by the wind of the spirit as they wrote scripture guided carefully into speaking and writing down exactly what God wanted written down. And that fits with Jesus' own description of the Holy Spirit as a what? Wind that blows wherever he wishes. 
So that image shows us that in this fascinating process of bringing God's words from his mind to parchment paper, the Holy Spirit didn't override the individual personalities and styles and backgrounds and vocabulary of the human writers, right? That's evident to anyone who reads the Bible. Peter sounds different than John, who sounds different than Paul, who sounds different than Isaiah. God preserved those individual uniquenesses, I guess you could call it. He used them and he guided those 40 men over the period of 1,500 years into a beautiful synergy, a cooperation in this work of recording God's revelation. The result was that what ended up getting written down was holy scripture without error, authoritative, the very word of the living God. You hold in your hands or on your tablet the very words of God that he wanted us to have. Friends, the Bible has to be the word of God. It has to be. It can't be a product of human imagination, as many people contend that it is, because no human being would have written it this way. I mean, think about it. If you wanted to start a religion, and you wanted to attract people into this new religion, would you write down in the holy text of your new religion that all of humanity without exception has offended a perfect God by sinning against him in thought, word, and deed. Would you write that down? Is that how you would bring people in? Come on in. We're all sinners. Would you write that everyone is headed for eternal judgment unless they repent of their sins? Is that how you'd start a new religion? Would you write that everyone must fully trust a perfect king who ironically let himself be crucified so that he could shed his blood so that blood could atone for the sins of all of humanity? Would you write that? Would you write that only those people who distrust their own goodness but trust fully in the sufficiency of Jesus' goodness and his sacrifice on an old rugged cross, only those people will be saved and be on their way to heaven? Would you write that? There's an old saying that says, people couldn't have written the Bible if they would have, and they wouldn't have written it if they could have. And I think they're right. The Bible is of divine origin. It's exquisite in its design, singular in its theme, and coherent in its declaration that God has one story and has one hero in that story, and his name is Jesus. That's one reason I know and believe that the Bible is the word of God. Humans wouldn't have written it like this. Humans would have written, we're all awesome, we're all great, it's going to be great, we're going to live together in heaven forever, be good. And that's not the main message of the Bible. I'm telling you, you can fully rely on the word of God to tell you the truth. You can be 100% sure that it's able to light your way, illuminate your path. You know, we talked about the Spirit carried men along to, to write the Word of God, right? Sometimes people want to put a dichotomy between the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and the Word. Peter's telling us the Spirit wrote the Word. The Spirit wrote the Word. People often talk, I want to be led by the Spirit, Pastor Steve. I want to be led by the Spirit. Where I always start is, well, read the Word. Because he wrote the Word of God. And as you read the Word more and more, you'll begin to have a a sense of that voice. And then when the Spirit does talk to you about your work or your job or your family, you'll go, I know that voice. 
I become accustomed to that voice because I've spent time in his word. Does that make sense? The scriptures, the word of God, illuminate this dark world with the truth. And Peter says you would do well to pay attention to it. This more sure word, you would do well to heed it, to let it shape you, to let it shape your thinking, to let it form that grid through which you process your experiences in this world, to give heed to its message, and I believe he was right on. When Scripture tells us that Jesus is coming back one day in power and great glory, glory, listen, we do well to pay attention to that, to believe it, and to live every day in light of that glorious truth that Jesus is coming back. When scripture says, as it does in Romans, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, we do well to heed that call, right? To wipe the sleep out of our eyes and wake up and look around and see the signs of his soon return and adjust our lives accordingly. When scripture goes on to say, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Interesting that sexual immorality and jealousy are viewed on an equal plane. When the scripture says that, we do well to heed that instruction, right? And repent of living like the people of the world who don't know Jesus. When scripture instructs us, rather clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do well to let the shining lamp of God's word direct our steps further into God's path towards Christ-like living. And when Jesus in the Bible clearly states, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. We better pay attention to that. We better take to heart the truth that only those who are born again by placing faith, full faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross, only those are born again and only the born again are going to enter into heaven. We better take that to heart for ourselves and for others that we know and love, right? Only those will one day participate in the glorious kingdom as Jesus' friends and as Jesus' allies. It's the more sure word, and we all do well to pay attention to everything it says, to let it shape our worldview and our lives. It is the word of the living God. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, again, I thank you that you have not left us at the mercy of the cultural currents of our day to just be swept downstream, but you've given us something solid to build our lives on, a lamp that illumines our path, our way, the truth of the word of God, the more sure word. Lord, I pray for any in the room this morning who are not yet born again, who aren't sure that they've trusted in the sacrifice of your son for salvation and forgiveness. I pray that today would be that day, that they would make sure of that, so that when you come, they will be among those that you bring into your kingdom. (coughs) 
I thank you for the more sure word. Lord, as those who follow you, may your word be a lamp unto our path and a light unto our feet. May we marinate our minds in the word, read it, memorize it, study it, learn it, and live it out most importantly. I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Receive our praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.